Introduction to the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Ogus. The Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. Introduction. Dedication to Edmund Malone, Esquire. My dear sir, in every narrative, whether historical or biographical, authenticity is of the utmost consequence. Of this I have ever been so firmly persuaded that I inscribed a former work to that person who was the best judge of its truth. I need not tell you, I mean General Paoli, who, after his great, though unsuccessful, efforts to preserve the liberties of his country, has found an honourable asylum in Britain, where he has now lived many years, the object of royal regard and private respect, and whom I cannot name without expressing my very grateful sense of the uniform kindness which he has been pleased to show me. The friends of Dr. Johnson can best judge, from internal evidence, whether the numerous conversations which form the most valuable part of the ensuing pages are correctly related. To them, therefore, I wish to appeal for the accuracy of the portrait here exhibited to the world. As one of those who were intimately acquainted with him, you have a tide to this address. You have obligingly taken the trouble to peruse the original manuscript of this tour, and can vouch for the strict fidelity of the present publication. Your literary alliance with our much-lamented friend, in consequence of having undertaken to render one of his labours more complete, by your edition of Shakespeare, a work which I am confident will not disappoint the expectations of the public, gives you another claim. But I have a still more powerful inducement to prefix your name to this volume, and it gives me an opportunity of letting the world know that I enjoy the honour and happiness of your friendship, and of thus publicly testifying the sincere regard with which I am, my dear sir, your very faithful and obedient servant, James Boswell, London, 20th of September, 1785. He was of an admirable pregnancy of wit, and that pregnancy much improved by continual study from his childhood, by which he had gotten such a promptness in expressing his mind that his extemporal speeches were little inferior to his premeditated writings. Many, no doubt, had read as much and perhaps more than he, but scarce ever any concocted his reading into judgment as he did. Baker's Chronicle Introduction Dr. Johnson had for many years given me hopes that we should go together and visit the Hebrides. Martin's account of those islands had impressed us with the notion that we might there contemplate a system of life almost totally different from what we had been accustomed to see, and to find simplicity and wildness and all the circumstances of remote time or place so near to our native Great Ireland was an object within the reach of reasonable curiosity. Dr. Johnson has said in his journey that he scarcely remembered how the wish to visit the Hebrides was excited, but he told me in summer 1763 
that his father put Martin's account into his hands when he was very young, and that he was much pleased with it. We reckoned there would be some inconveniences and hardships, and perhaps a little danger, but these we were persuaded were magnified in the imagination of everybody. When I was at Fernie in 1764, I mentioned our design to Voltaire. He looked at me as if I had talked of going to the North Pole, and said, "'You do not insist on my accompanying you?' "'No, sir. Then I am very willing you should go.' I was not afraid that our curious expedition would be prevented by such apprehensions, but I doubted that it would not be possible to prevail on Dr. Johnson to relinquish for some time the felicity of a London life, which, to a man who can enjoy it with full intellectual relish, is apt to make existence in any narrower sphere seem insipid or irksome. I doubted that he would not be willing to come down from his elevated state of philosophical dignity from a superiority of wisdom among the wise, and of learning among the learned, and from flashing his wit upon minds bright enough to reflect it. He had disappointed my expectations so long that I began to despair, but in spring 1773 he talked of coming to Scotland that year with so much firmness that I hoped he was at last in earnest. I knew that if he were once launched from the metropolis, he would go forward very well, and I got our common friends there to assist in settling him afloat. To Mrs. Thrale in particular, whose enchantment over him seldom failed, I was much obliged. It was, I'll give thee a wind. Thou art kind. To attract him, we had invitations from the chiefs MacDonald and MacLeod, and for additional aid I wrote to Lord Elibank, Dr. William Robertson and Dr. Beatty. To Dr. Robertson, so far as my letter concerned the present subject, I wrote as follows. Our friend Mr. Samuel Johnson is in great health and spirits, and I do think has a serious resolution to visit Scotland this year. The more attraction, however, the better, and therefore, though I know he will be happy to meet you there, it will forward the scheme if in your answer to this you express yourself concerning it with that power of which you are so happily possessed and which may be so directed as to operate strongly upon him. His answer to that part of my letter was quite as I could have wished. It was written with the address and persuasion of the historian of America. When I saw you last, you gave us some hopes that you might prevail with Mr. Johnson to make out that excursion to Scotland, with the expectation of which we have long flattered ourselves. If he could order matters so as to pass some time in Edinburgh about the close of the summer session, and then visit some of the highland scenes, I am confident he would be pleased with the grand features of nature in many parts of this country. He will meet with many persons here who respect him and some who I am persuaded he will think not unworthy of his esteem. I wish he would make the experiment. He sometimes cracks his jokes upon us, but he will find that we can distinguish between the stabs of malevolence and the rebukes of the righteous, which are like excellent oil, and break not the head. Offer my best compliments to him, and assure him that I shall be happy to have the satisfaction of seeing him under my roof. To Dr. Beatty I wrote, 
The chief intention of this letter is to inform you that I now seriously believe Mr. Samuel Johnson will visit Scotland this year, but I wish that every power of attraction may be employed to secure our having so valuable an acquisition, and therefore I hope you will, without delay, write to me what I know you think, that I may read it to the mighty sage, with proper emphasis, before I leave London, which I must do soon. He talks of you with the same warmth that he did last year. We are to see as much of Scotland as we can in the months of August and September. We shall not be long of being at Marischal College. He is particularly desirous of seeing some of the Western Islands. Dr. Beattie did better, ipse venet. He was, however, so polite as to waive his privilege of nil mihi rescribus, and wrote from Edinburgh as follows. Your very kind and agreeable favour of the 20th of April overtook me here yesterday, after having gone to Aberdeen, which place I left about a week ago. I am to set out this day for London, and hope to have the honour of paying my respects to Mr. Johnson and you, about a week or ten days hence. I shall then do what I can to enforce the topic you mention, but at present I cannot enter upon it, as I am in a very great hurry, for I intend to begin my journey within an hour or two. He was as good as his word, and threw some pleasing motives into the northern scale. But indeed Mr. Johnson loved all that he heard from one whom he tells us in his Lives of the Poets, Gray found a poet, a philosopher, and a good man. My Lord Elibank did not answer my letter to his lordship for some time. The reason will appear when we come to the Isle of Skye. I shall then insert my letter with letters from his lordship both to myself and Mr. Johnson. I beg it may be understood that I insert my own letters, as I relate my own sayings, rather as keys to what is valuable belonging to others than for their own sake. Luckily Mr. Justice, now Sir Robert Chambers, who was about to sail for the East Indies, was going to take leave of his relations at Newcastle, and he conducted Dr. Johnson to that town. Mr. Scott of University College, Oxford, now Dr. Scott of the Commons, accompanied him from thence to Edinburgh. With such propitious convoys did he proceed to my native city. But lest metaphor should make it be supposed he actually went by sea, I choose to mention that he travelled in post-chaises, of which the rapid motion was one of his most favourite amusements. Dr. Samuel Johnson's character, religious, moral, political and literary, nay, his figure and manner, are, I believe, more generally known than those of almost any man. Yet it may not be superfluous here to attempt a sketch of him. Let my readers then remember that he was a sincere and zealous Christian, of High Church of England and monarchical principles, which he would not tamely suffer to be questioned. Steady and inflexible in maintaining the obligations of piety and virtue, both from a regard to the order of society and from a veneration for the great source of all order. Correct, nay, stern in his taste, hard to please and easily offended, impetuous and irritable in his temper, but of a most humane and benevolent heart, having a mind stored with a vast and various collection of learning and knowledge, which he communicated with peculiar perspicuity and force in rich and choice expression. He united a most logical head, 
with a most fertile imagination, which gave him an extraordinary advantage in arguing, for he could reason close or wide as he saw best for the moment. He could, when he chose it, be the greatest sophist that ever wielded a weapon in the schools of declamation. But he indulged this only in conversation, for he owned that he sometimes talked for victory. He was too conscientious to make error permanent and pernicious by deliberately writing it. He was conscious of his superiority. He loved praise when it was brought to him, but was too proud to seek for it. He was somewhat susceptible of flattery. His mind was so full of imagery that he might have been perpetually a poet. It has been often remarked that in his poetical pieces, which it is to be regretted are so few because so excellent, his style is easier than in his prose. There is deception in this. It is not easier, but better suited to the dignity of verse, as one may dance with grace, whose motions in ordinary walking, in the common step, are awkward. He had a constitutional melancholy, the clouds of which darkened the brightness of his fancy, and gave a gloomy cast to his whole course of thinking. Yet, though grave and awful in his deportment, when he thought it necessary or proper, he frequently indulged himself in pleasantry and sportive sallies. He was prone to superstition, but not to credulity. Though his imagination might incline him to a belief of the marvellous and the mysterious, his vigorous reason examined the evidence with jealousy. He had a loud voice and a slow, deliberate utterance, which no doubt gave some additional weight to the sterling metal of his conversation. Lord Pembroke said once to me at Wilton, with a happy pleasantry and some truth, that Dr. Johnson's sayings would not appear so extraordinary were it not for his bow-wow way. But I admit the truth of this only on some occasions. The Messiah played upon the Canterbury organ is more sublime than when played upon an inferior instrument, but very slight music will seem grand when conveyed to the ear through that majestic medium. While, therefore, Dr. Johnson's sayings are read, let his manner be taken along with them. Let it, however, be observed that the sayings themselves are generally great, that though he might be an ordinary composer at times, he was for the most part a handle. His person was large, robust, I may say approaching to the gigantic, and grown unwieldy from corpulency. His countenance was naturally of the cast of an ancient statue, but somewhat disfigured by the scars of that evil which it was formerly imagined the royal touch could cure. He was now in his sixty-fourth year, and was become a little dull of hearing. His sight had always been somewhat weak, yet so much does mind govern and even supply the deficiency of organs, that his perceptions were uncommonly quick and accurate. His head, and sometimes also his body, shook with a kind of motion like the effect of a palsy. He appeared to be frequently disturbed by cramps or convulsive contractions of the nature of that distemper called St. Vitus's dance. He wore a full suit of plain brown clothes with twisted hair buttons of the same colour, a large bushy greyish wig, a plain shirt, black worsted stockings, and silver buckles. Upon this tour, when journeying, 
He wore boots and a very wide brown cloth greatcoat with pockets which might have almost held the two volumes of his folio dictionary, and he carried in his hand a large English oak stick. Let me not be censured for mentioning such minute particulars. Everything relative to so great a man is worth observing. I remember Dr. Adam Smith, in his rhetorical lectures at Glasgow, told us he was glad to know that Milton wore latchets in his shoes instead of buckles. When I mention the oak stick, it is but letting Hercules have his club, and by and by my readers will find this stick will bud and produce a good joke. This imperfect sketch of the combination and the form of that wonderful man whom I venerated and loved while in this world, and after whom I gaze with humble hope, now that it has pleased Almighty God to call him to a better world, will serve to introduce to the fancy of my readers the capital object of the following journal, in the course of which I trust they will attain to a considerable degree of acquaintance with him. His prejudice against Scotland was announced almost as soon as he began to appear in the world of letters. In his Londoner poem, are the following nervous lines. For who would leave unbribed Hibernia's land, or change the rocks of Scotland for the strand? There none are swept by sudden fate away, but all whom hunger spares with age decay. The truth is, like the ancient Greeks and Romans, he allowed himself to look upon all nations but his own as barbarians, not only Hibernia and Scotland, but Spain, Italy and France are attacked in the same poem. If he was particularly prejudiced against the Scots, it was because they were more in his way, because he thought their success in England rather exceeded the due proportion of their real merit, and because he could not but see in them that nationality which I believe no liberal-minded Scotsman will deny. He was, indeed, if I may be allowed the phrase, at bottom much of a John Bull, much of a true-born Englishman. There was a stratum of common clay under the rock of marble. He was voraciously fond of good eating, and he had a good deal of that quality called humour which gives an oiliness and a gloss to every other quality. I am, I flatter myself, completely a citizen of the world, in my travels through Holland, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Corsica, France, I never felt myself from home, and I sincerely love every kindred and tongue and people and nation. I subscribe to what my late truly learned and philosophical friend Mr. Crosby said, that the English are better animals than the Scots, they are nearer the sun, their blood is richer and more mellow, but when I humour any of them in an outrageous contempt of Scotland, I fairly own I treat them as children, and thus I have at some moments found myself obliged to treat even Dr. Johnson. To Scotland, however, he ventured, and he returned from it in great good humour, with his prejudices much lessened, and with very grateful feelings of the hospitality with which he was treated, as is evident from that admirable work, his journey to the Western Isles of Scotland, which, to my utter astonishment, has been misapprehended even to rancour by many of my countrymen. To have the company of Chambers and Scott, he delayed his journey so long that the Court of Session, which rises on the 11th of August, was broke up before he got to Edinburgh. End of Introduction <laughs>